People are strange when you're a stranger. Faces look ugly when you're alone. Women seem wicked when you're unwanted. Streets are uneven when you're down. When you're strange, faces come out of the rain. When you're strange, no one. Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I'll be continuing my look at Charles Brockton Brown's, Charlie Brown's uh, gothic novel from 1799 called Arthur Mervyn. If you're just joining us, you may want to go back and listen to the first part where I cover the first 11 chapters of Arthur Mervyn, or even go back and listen to my series, my short series on Wieland, um, Charles Brockton Brown's first, first novel, really good one, an interesting one. Um, now, Brockton Brown was one of the first... American novelist who really made his profession, really made his career as a novelist. There were other novels written before. I think The Coquette was one. But this, this is the guy who really wanted to become a professional writer, like in the European style. So he's a really notable figure in American history. And his novels are a lot of fun. His novels always have, um, you know, sometimes they're a bit of a morality tale that might make them seem a little bit old-fashioned, and this one especially, because it is kind of a coming-of-age story, and it's a story about the choices one makes and the situations one gets put into and how one's morality helps him overcome those and, and, and make the right choice. But there's a lot of weird stuff in these novels. There's murders, there's deception, there's fraud, there's weird trickery. I mean, one thing that happens both in Wieland and in Arthur Mervyn is that there's a character who does odd things just to kind of trick people or play around or have fun with people, kind of mischievousness that leads into dark areas sometimes. Um, so anyways, I like this novel a lot. Uh, uh, the most notable thing about Arthur Mervyn is that it's set in the yellow fever epidemic of 1793 in Philadelphia. And that's really where the second part, um, or this not, te not technically the second part, the novel's in two parts, but the second part of my review covers. It's, it's the second half of the first part. Of, of the novel, so it's the second quarter of the of the entire story, and this is <coughs> excuse me. This is set mostly in this yellow fever epidemic, and our main character, our hero Arthur Mervyn, decides to go back to Philly to face well, to face the disease and and do a good deed in the process. All right, then. So let's just jump in. Uh, Chapter 12 of, of Arthur Mervyn. So where we left off, Welbeck, who is this con artist that Arthur Mervyn gets caught up with, uh, tells the story and reveals his past. Uh, now, how much we can trust it, I don't know, but his past reveals a lot of interesting stuff going on, how he, he made an enemy in his, in his youth, a man named Watson, because he basically seduced his sister. That happens, that kind of theme happens a lot in this story. And he's been chased by him, but he's also, you know, he, he explains how he got into all this money and how, the, how to keep up heirs. He had to then turn to forgery and crime once he kind of established himself as a rich nabub, uh, a, a rich man from afar. He, he, he had this idea to keep this, uh, keep up heirs. And to do that, he turns to crime and, and fraud and, and deception and, and forgery. And that's what he wanted Mervyn to help him with. Mervyn figures out that he's a, basically a con artist and then approaches him. And that's when he tells this story. And it, it covers over three chapters where, where Welbeck tells his background. But it all leads up to the situation where there's this dead body now in the house. Because Watson came to get his revenge on Welbeck. And, you know, in a dramatic fight, 
Welbeck shoots Watson, killing him while he escaped unscathed. And now, in Chapter 12, Welbeck basically says, you got to help me hide the body because we can't let the police find out or we can't let the authorities. That's not really police yet in, in, in this time in American history. But, you know, we have to hide this and, and disappear the body of, of Watson. And so poor Arthur Mervyn gets caught into this criminal act. And, and it's that I mean, this theme comes up again and again. Welbeck is this bad influence and he's drawing Mervyn into these criminal Deeds and part of Mervyn's growing up is to declare his independence uh, from Welbeck and from crime. I mean, if you want to look at it symbolically, maybe Mervyn is America, Welbeck is England, with all its corruptions and sins and crimes, and and America, if it wants to grow up, has to break itself free from from that influence. And so we see Welbeck sending uh, not Watson sending Mervyn out to get a spade, and they have to they actually dig this grave in the house um, he even says like we want to steal Watson's wallet so even in this murder Wolbeck is completely depraved and even going so far as to steal is to encourage Mervyn to steal Watson's wallet again it's not something that occurs to Mervyn almost all the bad things that Mervyn does are instigated by other people it never occurs to him to 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 do anything really bad at all it's always this outside influence and he tells him to steal the wallet um, and he does he takes the wallet and then they escape to Phil, from Philadelphia. Um, and as they're escaping, they're crossing the river. Welbeck, you know, falls off into the water. And from Mervyn's point of view, it seems he's dead. Now, we'll meet Welbeck one more time in the story. So it's, he's not really dead, but it seems that he um, fell overboard. In fact, he's escaping. So Mervyn is now on his own. And, and we, we, he, we get a summary of the situation. In this chapter, quote, Welbeck was dead. His property was swallowed up and his creditors left to wonder at his disappearance. All that was left was the furniture of his house to which Mrs. Wentworth would lay claim a discharge of unpaid rent. What now was the destiny that awaited his lost and friendless Mademoiselle Lodi? Where was she concealed? Welbeck had dropped no intimation by which I might be led to suspect the place of her abode. If my powers in other respects could have contributed aught to her relief, my ignorance of her asylum had utterly disabled me. But what of the murdered person? Had he suddenly vanished from the face of the earth, his fate and his place of internment would probably be suspected and ascertained. Was I sure to escape from the consequences of this deed? End quote. And he goes on, and he doesn't really know what to do with his life at this moment. He's kind of at a crossroads. He looks at the wall and he finds like $150 in, in banknotes, and he finds letters. And so the letters allow him to, to send the money back. So he does the right thing with, uh, with his money. He sends it to a, a Mrs. Mary Watson in in Santo Domingo, actually. And he doesn't write a note. He doesn't say what happens to Watson. He just sends the money back to her. And so as always, Mervyn's then, when he has this crossroad, his tendency is to go to the countryside and to dream of going to the countryside because he says he doesn't have any skills. He's basically a country rube. He doesn't, he's not made for the city. He doesn't have skills. He doesn't have a craft. So just go to the country. Make his living in the country. Um, and one thing that comes up in this part of the story that's mentioned early on, and I don't think I mentioned in the last episode, is that Mervyn thinks he's going to die young because all his family members died young. So he thinks there's actually a kind of curse in his family. And we, we learn the story of his sister's death a little bit later on. It's quite horrific. Um, but what he does come back for, or oh, no, I think he brought it with him, was this Lodi's manuscript. So Lodi was this man that Welbeck 
met in his final days as he died. He had all this money, right? And it was like twenty thousand dollars in in bills. This is what Welbeck was supposed to give to Clemenza Lodi, his his sister. Instead, he keeps it for himself, seduces and impregnates Clemenza Lodi, has her living with him, but never gives her the money. Kind of even sets himself up as her benefactor, guardian for legal purposes. But part of what Lodi left was this manuscript, this book that I think it was this guy Lodi's father wrote. And it's in it's in like Italian. And Welbeck kept it around because he thought there was some code or some message or some hidden money somewhere in this book. And we'll learn more about that later on. But that's really all he has. And he just goes to the countryside. So a lot happens in chapter 12. It's, it's kind of a, one of these turning points in Mervyn's life. And, and we see him, you know, driven to crime, but then trying to make it right. But not totally, because he can't fully admit what happened to Watson. He can't complain about that because of his own fears about what will happen, his fate. So with chapter 13, Mervyn pauses in his story. Remember, the whole, the whole thing is, a, is a, a, a narrative within a narrative, right? So it's, the main narrative is this Dr. Stevens, and then he meets Arthur Mervyn and gets a story from him. So at chapter 13, we get a pause in the narration briefly, and we learn that the narrator knows Wentworth and knows the Clavering story and knows all this background to a little bit about Welbeck even too. And we, we find out what happened, and in fact, Wentworth did claim all the furniture and all the property that uh, Welbeck had in his house to pay back rent. And so that, that prediction did come true. Wentworth inhaled to this, but, um, but essentially the house is pillaged, right? So that, that becomes an important point later on. Now the question is, if Mervyn was going off into the countryside, why not just... Why, didn't, why is he in the city when Dr. Stevens found him ill and, and decided to nurse him to health? health. And so this, this leads to the next question where, where Mervyn has to kind of continue his tale. Right? In fact, what we have here is a nice little novel, a nice little 100-page novel about a young man who gets kind of caught up in a, in a crime. It, it would almost make a, a plot for a nice little hard-boiled crime novel from the, from the 50s if you just kind of change the setting a little bit. But Mervyn has more to say, and he's got more to tell the story. He wants to explain how he got to the city in the middle of a yellow fever epidemic. So he goes back into his story, and he talks about, talks about how he goes to the countryside, and he meets up with a man named Mr. Hadwin. And he offers his service as a day laborer at a farmhouse. And this is kind of where he wanted to end up. This was his, his hope for himself, that he would become a, just a farmer, a farmhand, and, and, and go back to the land. Again, I think there's a really this kind of Jeffersonian Hamiltonian tension in this novel between kind of the city with its corruptions and then the countryside is seen as pure and honest labor. And how Mervyn is able to kind of become an urbanite, an urban person without falling into those sins is, is I think, a theme here. And now there's, this is a Gruet family in, in quite a bit of harmony, right? There's two daughters. There's Eliza and Susan. The older one is Susan and she has a a boyfriend that she's going to marry a fiance named Wallace. Now Wallace is an interesting character. We're going to learn more about his backstory later on. But Wallace, in fact, is the person who locked up Arthur Mervyn as kind of a joke, like back in chapter four or five. And he thought he was being kidnapped or murdered or some weird stuff. But actually, it was just a joke. And he, you know, he's going to make this connection between Wallace and what happened to him later on. But so Susan is engaged to marry this guy. 
Um, Wallace, he falls in love with Eliza, Eliza um, Hadwin. These people are Quakers, and he even questions maybe he'll convert and become a Quaker and marry Eliza, right? But he actually gets so nervous about her and fearing he can't marry her, he can't even see her, he gets so much in love with her that he can't even like talk. He's like a really silly teenage boy almost in the way he, he falls in love with Eliza. So instead of being distracted by her and seeing her too much, he decides to focus on Lodi's manuscript. And he's able to do a quick translation because he has a knowledge of Latin. So he's able to do this pig Latin translation of, of, of the text. And he eventually does find in there a banknote worth $200,000. So that 200000 that Welbeck got was only half of the fortune. Um, now, Lodi never told Welbeck about this other half of the fortune, it seems. Then Welbeck didn't know it, so now he th now he's got a choice. Does he either return this money to Clemenza Lodi, but he doesn't know where she is, right? So he feels an obligation to return the money to her, but he also thinks he can take it, and now he can marry, and 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 be adequate to to Eliza. So he he's got a choice to make. Now he's going to end up committing to returning the money to Clemenza Lodi, but he doesn't know where to find her. And now we start to get the rumors of the yellow fever hitting Philadelphia. And we, I mean, the descriptions here are great. That's really the high point of the novel, I think, is these scenes where he's in the middle of this epidemic. And he has the fear, the terror even, of, of falling ill. This, you know, I don't know how bad the really the yellow fever epidemic of this year was. You know, did, did it, was it, because we get the scenes here like it's the Black Plague or something. Um, quote, the usual occupation and amusements of life were at an end. The terror had exterminated all the sentiments of nature. Wives were deserted by husbands and children by parents. Some had shut themselves in their houses and debarred themselves from all communication with the rest of mankind. The consternation of others had destroyed their understanding and their misguided steps hurried them into the midst of the danger that they had previously labored to shun. Men were seized by this disease in the streets. Passengers fled from them. Entrance into their only dwelling was denied them. They perished in the public ways. The chambers of disease were deserted, and the sick left to die of negligence. None could be found to remove the lifeless bodies. Their remains, suffered to decay by piecemeal, filled the air with deadly exultations and added tenfold to the devastation. End quote. Well, I just looked it up. The, the epidemic itself of 1793. Uh, so at the time, Philadelphia had 50,000 people. And 5,000 died in, a, in like a two-month period. So that's, that's pretty bad. I mean, it's 10% of the population. Yeah, still, the description we get here is like, the streets are empty, everyone's dying. It, you know, it makes it look like, like the whole town was, was killed off in the, in the epidemic. So there might be a little bit of hyperbole here. Um, anyways, chapter 14. Um, Hadwin gets news on the disease, and you see people fleeing the city to the countryside. And Wallace is talked about. Now, Wallace is, of course, Susan's fiance, and he is in the city. He was there for merchant work, and he's, he's kind of involved with some people in, in this kind of merchant lifestyle. And he decides on his own, Mervyn, I mean, decides on his own to go to save Wallace. He thinks he can get in and get out. He thinks it's, it's something he can, he can find Wallace bring him back safely and, and lift Susan's heart to know her fiancé is, is safe. And I'll ask for the risk. He thinks about the risk, but he also thinks that he's going to die young anyway. So he's sort of willing to sacrifice himself for the Hadwin family, you know, because he doesn't think he's going he's gonna to make it. And he's, got, he's got this family curse. 
he does admit though he has another job to do, and that job is to is to find Clemenza Lodi or find some relative and to return this money to her. So that's another part of his task. So that's in the back of his mind. But his main job is he decides to go to Philly is to is to find Wallace, save him, and and bring him to the countryside, bring him and restore that family. So chapter fifteen. Now this is just an epic chapter. This is something you just got to read and experience for yourself. It's it's Mervin going into the city and just experiencing, you know, the sights and the sounds and of the epidemic, the empty streets, uh, quote, families of weeping mothers and dismayed children attended with few pieces of indispensable furniture were carrying their vehicles in every form. The parent or husband had perished and the price of some movable or the pittance handed forth by public charity had been expended to purchase the means of retiring from this theater of distresses, the one certain and hopeless of accommodation in the neighboring districts. So he's, as he's approaching the city, he's like going in. He's one of the few people going into the city, and everyone else is fleeing this. I mean, it's, it's almost cinematic, the, these descriptions. I just love it. Um, this dead bodies on the streets, the hearse driving by, picking up the dead bodies. He's finally able to find the house, though. He goes through these, these scenes in the street, and they're great. I just, I just love this chapter, um, just for, for, the, for the atmosphere. Now he goes to the house. Now he kind of knows where to go. He knows that Wallace is working for this guy. What's his name? Thetford. Thetford? Thetford. Sorry. Thetford. T-H-E-T-F-O-R-D. Thetford. And, and he goes into these houses and, and there's like sick people and dead people. So he starts to lose hope that he finds them. And he doesn't really know who Wallace is. He sees a dying person. But he thinks, well, is this Wallace or not? How am I going to find out? And he's got like a brief description of him. It's later on he, he connects him to the person who kidnapped him later on. So he eventually finds this guy he thinks is Wallace. And he finds that he's already died. So he despairs that he has lost, that he's, he's failed in his, his quest. Um, but of course, he's not 100% sure about who Wallace is, so he, he wants to kind of look around. But then something horrible happens to him. He gets hit on the head, knocked unconscious, and when he wakes up, he's almost being buried alive. He's taken for dead, and he's being buried in, you know, with all the other dead bodies. It's pretty gruesome, fun stuff. And I think Charles Brockton Brown is really good at this. And this, this, this story doesn't have the same kind of supernatural feel that... Wheeland has and doesn't have like madness is not as much a part of it. There's a little bit about insanity here, but not, not quite to the same degree as you have in Wheeland. But you have this wonderful, creepy stuff. It is sort of like a horror novel, especially in the, this part of the story. You know, this idea of almost being buried alive and just nearly being killed. Um, but he gets away and he finally is able to track down the story uh, by asking people around and he you know, he, the story he sort of gets is that, you know, th that that house wasn't Wallace. There were just some people who were staying there temporarily. And th that those were looters. The person who knocked him in the head were looters. And, and they, you know, they were just scared of getting caught, so they knocked him on the head. And that sort of explains what happened in that, that near-death experience. So we learned there's hope that Wallace is still alive, so he's back on the, on the quest. But... Um, Arthur Mervyn also fears at this point that he's contracted yellow fever. And he wants to then go to the house, the domicile of Thetford, 
Because he thinks if he just gets sick and he's on the street, or if he's sleeping in some kind of public place, he'll just be dragged to the hospitals, which which seems in this case to be like a death sentence. So he's you know going to find Thetford's house, sleep there, maybe find Wallace, and you know, so he's got that. But he he thinks he's sick, so he he thinks his death is 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 coming soon. So he's got to finish his jobs, uh, finish his jobs, find finding Wallace and and locating someone from the Lodi family who can take that twenty thousand. Dollars. Um, in chapter seventeen, he, he does go to the Thetford house, and and it's kind of a chilling scene too because he he remembers seeing that house before when he entered into into Philadelphia. Quote: I recall the scene of which a rude scratch had been given by the hearseman. If such were the fate of the master of the family, abounding with money and friends, what could be hoped for the moneyless and friendless Wallace? The house appeared to be vacant and silent, but those tokens might deceive. There was little room for hope, but certainty was wanting and might perhaps be obtained by entering the house. In some of the upper rooms, a wretched being might be immured, by whom the information so earnestly desired might be imparted, and to whom my presence might bring relief, not only from pestilence, but famine. For a moment, I forgot my own necessitous condition and reflected that the abstinence had already undermined my strength. So he knocks on the door, thinking he can, at the very least, he can help whoever might be in here. Maybe he'll find Wallace, or maybe he'll find news of Wallace. So he's doing the right thing, even though his life's in danger. And I, I think that's the message here: is his self-sacrifice, his willingness to risk his life for others, and that's that's his natural goodness, right? And and partially in, in telling the story, of course, he wants to show that he's a good person, and that it was just Welbeck who was driving him to these criminal criminal acts. Um, but. He finds this guy in the door. The guy, the guy's name is Metalote, and he's, you know, he's not Thetford. And he tells the story about Wallace and Thetford that suggests that Wallace has died. One thing we can we can uh, mine this story for is ideas about medicine, ideas about disease, and how it spreads, right? Um, and there's little hints throughout about this 18, late 18th century ideas of of disease, you know, and does it come from the environment? People didn't have like the clear germ theory yet, right? Now they knew that it seems to spread within populations, that you seem, if someone gets it in a family, the rest of the family members can get it. So there seems to be some contagion, but is that from the environment or, or what? Now yellow fever in particular spreads by mosquitoes. So it's not contagious between people. And it seems they know that, or at least Brown knows that or guesses it. Uh, we see on page 374, the Library of America version, the conduct of Thetford was it absurd as it was wicked. To imagine this disease to be contagious was the height of folly. To suppose himself secure, merely not permitting a sick man to remain at his roof was no less stupid. But Thetford's fears had subverted his understanding. So, I don't know, there's a few hints here about just the, the concept of disease. Now, I, I, I haven't gone through very systematically, but... It'd be interesting to read this with an eye to, 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 to concepts about medical knowledge at the time. Um, eventually, this guy, Metalote, says, well, you can, I'm staying here in the Stetford house, but you can stay you know, at my house, which isn't far away. And he says, my servant there, Austin, will, will help you out. He's a black servant. Um, and he eventually goes there, and then he sees Mr. Hadwin, Mr. Hadwin, the, the guy who, run, who owns that farm, right, that he's been staying at, working for. Now, they don't, he doesn't approach him, right, because he never told Hadwin he's going. He was kind of, he just went to Philly to save Wallace without telling anyone. And 
he feels starts to feel really guilty about not telling him he was coming. Now, Hadwin is risking his life by coming there, and, and it's not necessary. He also doesn't really want to approach him because because I think basically he feels kind of embarrassed. He thinks if I would have just told Hadwin, you know, he would have been okay with me going and he would have supported it. Yet, you know, so he feels kind of stupid in this situation. Um, but, you know, he decides I got to keep looking around for Wallace, right, to find a definitive answer on, on Wallace. And once again, we're kind of at a crossroads. Quote, meanwhile, how was I to proceed? What hinders me from pursuing the footsteps of Hadwin with all the expedition which my uneasiness of brain and stomach would allow? I can see that to leave anything undone with regard to Wallace would be absurd. His property might be put under the care of a new friend, but how is it to be distinguished from the property of another's? It was probably contained in the trunks. End quote. So he thinks at the very least I can find the property. So just get some final resolution on Wallace is what he commits um, to doing. So finally, he's in Thetford's mansion uh, now, or is this the other the, the other mansion? Yeah, it's, it's Metal Cote's house. He's in now. So you see, he saw kind of Mr. Hadwin kind of you know walking around, and doesn't approach him, just lets him go. Um, but he's he's in this house, and he sees then what appears to be a ghost. So we get another kind of almost horror, right? But again, it's just a emaciated, sick person um, that kind of scares him because he, he does seem to be almost like a ghost um, but it's Wallace and it's 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 the Wallace he knows because it's the guy who, who kidnapped him earlier right my doubts were quickly dispelled the door opened and a figure glided in the port manitou dropped from my arms and the heart's blood chilled. If an apparition of the dead was possible, and that possibility I could not deny, this was such an apparition. A hue, yellowish and livid, bones uncovered with flesh, eyes ghastly hollow, woe begotten, and fixed in an agony of wonder upon me, and locks matted and negligent, constituted the image which I now beheld. My belief of a somewhat preternatural in his appearance was confirmed by recollections of resemblances between these features and the one, one who was dead. In the shape and visage, shadowy and death-like, as they were, the lineaments of Wallace, of him who had misled my rustic simplicity on my first visit to this city and whose death I now had conceived to be incontestably ascertained was forcibly recognized. So that's, that's he finds Wallace. So I guess that's good. So it was the, the one who trapped him earlier in the novel. Um, and he immediately, you know, identifies himself, says, let's get out of the city. We're going to go back to, you're going to get out of here and you're going to get, you know, back to Susan. All right, so he prepares to leave with Wallace. Get you know, get equipment, get horses, find find some way to go. And then Wallace gives him the story that basically Thetford talked him into staying, saying it's, it's going to be safe, and if it does get bad, the, the epidemic will just leave. We don't have to worry too much. And because of that, Thetford dies, and Wallace is is now sick. And there's a whole lot of pathos on the plague at the end of at the end of this chapter. Uh, we've seen a lot of it here, but I think it reaches some of its peaks here. Uh, the overall pathos and, and just the, the, the feeling of the weight of disease in the air, uh, the dead bodies, the, the poor on the streets, you know, the people who can't get away. There's a physician here who's trying to help. It, it's really good stuff at the end of this chapter, too. It's, it's one of these great scenes, I think. This whole section of the novel is great just for the, the feeling of, of being in this disease-written city 
you know, the feeling that if you're here too long, you're going to get sick too. This, this mystery about what the disease even is, it seems, you know, that the cause of it wasn't fully identified. So yeah, wonderful stuff here. In chapter 19, he finally is able to ask Wallace about the kidnapping, and, and Wallace does, con, you know, confess the story and says, well, I was just taking advantage of your rustic simplicity. You were a bit of a rube, so I was, I was playing with that, but my real goal was to trick some other people. So there was these, this married couple staying there, and the trick was they were going to stay in that room, and so the trick was to lock him in the room and have him sleep there. So when they come and they open, they open up the bed, you know, because it's those curtains, right? Those old style bed curtains. When they open it up and see the guy there, then they'll all be scared and it'll be kind of a funny joke. And he starts to regret doing this later on because he thinks, well, what if, you know, Thetford has a gun and shoots him or beats him up, you know, maybe. He starts to regret doing it, but he said he was just being mischievous, but he only later thought of the consequences. Now, what really happened was, of course, Mervyn left. He, he bandaged his shoes. He left out the window. And well, how was the baby involved in it? I think he puts a baby on the bed that was crying. So instead of finding a man, they find a baby. So they're still kind of shocked by it. But um, there's also the shoes because I, you know, they found the, the shoes. So it's kind of a mystery that Wallace can explain, but he really can't without getting into trouble. So it's just it ends up being this weird event that happened, like a baby and, uh, and the shoes. The baby was moved and the shoes were there. But with that out of the way, they decide to leave the city. And on the way, they're able to get, he's able to get Wallace a ride. He decides not to leave, though. Mervyn decides not to leave the city because he's going to die anyways. And he's going to face, uh, he's going to face the, the yellow fever. So he decides to go back to the Welbeck house to, to wait out the, the disease, to wait out the illness. And he thinks he, you know, he can't. You know, that's where he'll do it. The the sign the the scene of his his worst sins, I guess, is going to be the scene where he'll either live or or die. So he returns to the to the Welbeck house, and while he's there, now we're in chapter twenty. While he's there, um, you know, he's just waiting to get sick and to see, you know, for the yellow fever to take him. But then he thinks he hears the voice of. Of Colvin, who's like this monster from Mervyn's past, and I don't think we heard about him before. He just suddenly peers into the tail, and I don't know if Brown just added him at this point or if he was planned to be here, but he hears the voice of this guy, Colvin, C O L V I L L. And this guy, he's a real villain. I mean, he's a horrible person. It's not the first one that, you know, weird person people in Mervyn's life. There was that um, young man, uh, Clavering, we kept the picture of, um, and then there was Welbeck, and now there's this this backstory of Colvin. And quote, he, I mean, here's what here's what we get in the story. Three years ago, a man by the name of Colvin came on foot and with a knapsack on his back into the district where my father resided. He had learning and genius, and readily attained the station for which only he deemed himself qualified, that of schoolmaster. But he's really a bad guy. He's another seducer. He's described as an arch villain. And one of the people he ruins was his sister, was Mervyn's own sister. And we, we know she died early. Um, so, you know, he's responsible for his sister's death. And I, I guess rape or seduction, too. 
and he's just livid. He hears his voice, and he he doesn't you know he recognizes it immediately from his youth as this this Col Colville, and you know he's what am I going to do now? Does he get revenge? Does he run away? You know, but then Colvin starts to, or this man starts to come down the steps. But all you just recognize him from the voice. And the person that appears, though, isn't Colvin. It's, it's Welbeck. Welbeck is the one who comes down, down and, and reveals himself. Of all people, Welbeck, who, of course, Mervyn thought was, was long dead. And now we get to the climax of the first half of, of the story of Arthur Mervyn, which is this final confrontation between Welbeck and and Arthur Mervyn over, over the money, over the cash. Again, this is something that could have, you know, could be a nice little hard-boiled crime novel, you know, but what makes this novel so memorable and distinct is all these different side characters and events and weird oddities and coincidences going on on the side. It's one of the things that makes it so fun. Um, so first he has to come to terms with the fact that Welbeck is alive. Um, Welbeck himself seems fearful and almost going insane. At least that's the way the narrator talks about it, that he's almost crazy. Welbeck seems fearful that he's being followed, you know, and, and from Mervyn's point of view, he's going insane. But he doesn't know why he's like, you know, you're coming to get me finally, this kind of uh, rambling on. And finally, he comes down and Mervyn's finally able to explain that it's just a coincidence, you know. And they debate life and survival. And... Mervyn, who seems to want to, you know, abandon himself to fate. And Welbeck seems to want to fight for, for life, right? And we've seen before Welbeck's character, like, there's this choice. He like, like, I need to work to survive, but I refuse to work. But I need to survive. I must have the will to survive. And this is what leads him to a life of crime, right? That, that This work ethic theme comes up a few times here again as well. This contrast between... Arthur Mervyn, who, who wants to work, who wants to be honest, who wants to, you know, just let fate do what it must to him. And then Welbeck, who is more this person full of will, right, and asserting his will to, to survive, to endure, to be rich, whatever, trying to do everything with, you know, he needs to, to assert his will. And they sort of seem to debate this. Mervyn even says, death is the inevitable and universal lot. When or how it comes with a little moment. To stand when so many thousands are flowing around me is not to be expected. I have acted an humble and obscure part of the world, and my career has been short, but I murmur not at the decree that makes it so. Welbeck listens, but he, you know, he rejects that, the, those ideas and says, no, we have a duty to survive no matter what. You can, don't just you know, crawl into a fetal position and die here. He asks about this Colvin, too, and Welbeck doesn't know anything about this Colvin. So that, that seems to be just a, a bit of a, a, a red herring. I don't know. I haven't read the second half yet, so we'll see if we get any explanation about this Colville. Welbeck then explains how he, what happened with him after he, he fell out of the water, fell out of the boat into the water. And he swam to the Jersey Shore, um, uh, to, and he survived there. But he, he was kind of destitute. He finds a man who, who wants to help him get on his feet, a, a good man. And then we learn that he knows about the half of Lodi's estate that's, that's missing. And so his intention was to go back to the house to get the Lodi manuscript because they think that has the key to the other half of the estate, the other $20,000. And so he went back for the volume. That's what he's been looking for in the house, looking for this volume. He just regrets that the money is lost or, or the Wentworth took his stuff. 
So that's how we ended up at that, that house. And then in chapter 22, Mervyn reveals that, that he has the money, that, that in fact it wasn't, that the manuscript did hold the key to this fortune. And we return again to the, to the work ethic. Quote, this money it was another's. To retain it for his own use was criminal. Of this crime, he appeared to be as insensible as ever. His own gratification was the supreme law of his actions. To be subjected to the necessity of honest labor was the heaviest of all evils, and one from which he was willing to escape by the commission of suicide. But also we see at this moment Mervyn's final conquest over Welbeck. Right? Welbeck had dominated him for so much of this tale from now on, either in memory or in actions, but it's, it's at this moment that Mervyn declares his independence from Welbeck, essentially. And, and he does it by, through, through moral, the perseverance of, of his moral worldview. Right? He this is the first time he refuses to do what Welbeck says. And even the last time we, they met, right, he, he stole Watson's wallet from the dead body. And even though he did the right thing at the end, he, you know, he still did the, the stealing, the theft in the first place. And here's what Mervyn says. Welbeck had ceased to be dreaded or revered. That awe which once created by the superiority of age, refinement of manners, and dignity of garb had vanished. I was a boy in years, an indigent and uneducated rustic, but I was able to discern the illusions of power and riches the, and abjured every claim to esteem that was not found on integrity. There was no tribunal before which I should falter in asserting the truth and no species of martyrdom which I would not cheerfully embrace in its cause. So that's the decline of Welbeck. I think he doesn't, he stays in the story, but just in the background. So he stands up to Welbeck on the money. He promises to give it back to Lodi's sister. And at this point, Welbeck sort of blanches, starts accusing Mervyn of being a thief, saying, I have, I have a moral right to the money because Clemenza Lodi is my guardian right and she's not able to have property of her own so the property is mine by rights and you're not just by not giving it to me you're stealing it from Clemenza Lodi you're no better than me and he goes through all these arguments and at the end of his long speech he's like well why haven't you given me the money right it's it's you know it's, it's clearly mine by rights and then we get to chapter 23 where he turns the strategy Welbeck stops trying to, to argue on moral principles and he resorts, of course, to crime again and resorts to lies. And the lie he tells is, you know what? That's not even real money. That's no, those aren't real banknotes, they're forged, right? And I had forged them as a backup and hid them in, in the, the Lodi manuscript. And I just remembered now that this isn't even real. Of course, it's a pretty lame argument because he's been pushing so hard for the money, but he you know, he seems to convince Arthur Mervyn that, yeah, maybe this is fake. Because at this point, Mervyn just burns the money. He burns the banknotes. And then, of course, this drives Welbeck crazy because he just burned $20,000, which is a huge amount of money in those days. I think we talked about it in the last episode. Just, it's, it's really a fortune. Now, someone like Welbeck will spend it very quickly, it seems, because he burned through the first 20000 he got. Um, but, it, you know, he is horrified that this money's been destroyed. He says, what are you talking about? Of course I was lying about it being forged, you know, and then Mervyn, still kind of a little bit of a, a rube, you know, believed him. Um, but then Welbeck leaves and says, okay, you're going to die anyways, Mervyn, so I'm done with you. Mervyn goes out into the streets, 
hoping maybe you can get back to the farm, get back to Eliza, get get back to um, that the Hardin farm, and, and and that's when he is discovered by Dr. Stevens. He he sits down on a bench outside of Dr. Stevens' house, and that's where our novel actually picked up originally, which was Dr. Stevens finding this dying young man uh, outside of his house, and then he was brought in, and then we get the, the story. So we're back to the beginning. Now, that, that covers the first half of the novel, right? So the second half of the novel, which we'll start looking at next time, covers, you know, the, the kind of the completion of the tale. We, we, we've reached a high point, though. We've reached Mervyn becoming a morally independent person and assertive enough to, 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 to really stand for what he believes in, right? And he's no longer going to be dominated by people like, like Welbeck, right? But there's still the process of maturation that he's going to need to go through. And there's still the question of Wallace. Does he get back? There's the question of the future of the, of the family that he lived with and his own future career. Does he go to the farm? Does he end up a farmer or does he does he make peace with the city and, 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 and find a place for him so that is place does he find a place for himself in the city so that's what we're going to look into in the second half of the novel in the next two episodes so I hope you join me for that if you're reading along I'll probably cover part two through chapter chapter 11 maybe maybe 12 probably through chapter 11 that's about 100 pages so um, yeah, I look forward to that. So uh, next time, uh, part three of my review of, of Arthur Mervyn. Part two, if you're reading along in the actual book. It'll be the first half of part two of the story. So um, as always, thanks for listening. If you have any of your own thoughts about this novel, the setting, yellow fever, the, the history of disease, how diseases were understood in the past by people, you know, leave your comments below or you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Uh, thanks for uh, sharing these novels with me. And um, I'll see you next time. Faces come out of the rain when you're strange. No one remembers your name when you're strange. When you're strange. When you're.